Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Glenn Vandenberg via Dallas, Texas, who is currently the Executive Director of Software Development at Remax. Glenn Vandenberg, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So given your vast experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software code? Well, I don't know how vast it is, but um, the big thing is that maintainable software has actually been maintained. You, in my experience, work out the degree of freedom, degrees of freedom in your system as you design and and update and stretch it in different ways uh, and add functionality. It's one of the reasons that we, as an industry, have kind of settled on some variety of iterative design instead of trying to imagine what it should look like up front and uh, sticking to that plan. As you add new features and extend and expand it, you you learn what's too tightly coupled and break those things and, and give the software the de- degree of freedom and degrees of freedom that it needs. And it becomes more maintainable if you change it while trying to keep the design good along the way. Other things, maintainable software follows the conventions of its tools, doesn't try to fight against the way frameworks and libraries uh, are guiding you to go. And it has good internal documentation. And by that, I mean comments or or documents, associated documents or whatever that explain why the system is the way it is, not how it works, but why it's designed the way it is. Sometimes things will be surprisingly complex to a newcomer, and it's because you tried something simple and you learned that that wasn't enough. Or sometimes things will be surprisingly simple, and uh, it's good to document that, oh, well, we thought we needed to be more complicated, but it turns out this works fine for X, Y, and Z reasons. So those are the the common traits that I've noticed. I like that how you're talking about uh, why it's designed that way versus a how. I think code often helps illustrate or paints a you know a decent picture of how it works if you can kind of do your best to follow along. But the why it is, and I think sometimes that's always uh, you know for people that come onto a project later on, they don't always necessarily have that you know, that person in the corner that's been there since the, the beginning of the, the project that can be the, uh, the Oracle or the, just the, all the all wise person that can be like, well, we, because of this and, um, and whether you don't, you disagree with them, why do you think that's a, such an important thing? Or how, how do developers get better at conveying the why if is, is, is that, might they just assume that, well, if you look at the associated tickets that I was assigned or user story, that explains why we did it? Because if you look at the get commit message, is that not enough? Yeah, I don't know. And I, I certainly don't claim to be the best at this uh, or, or have it all down. We're onboarding uh, a new member of our team at the moment. And uh, I find myself spending a lot of time explaining, oh, this is that way because, and, you know, exactly the kind of thing you were talking about, the the guy in the corner who knows the history. So I'm doing that a lot. So there's definitely things that could be better documented in our system. But I started out in the school of thought that most functions and a lot of lines of code should have comments explaining what they are and how they work. I moved 
away from that. And like you said, good code with good names often does a really good job of explaining what's happening. But when I comment code now, it tends to be in the form of paragraphs, not little you know snippets that explain what's going on. But here you are. Uh, let me tell you the story of why we do it this complicated or roundabout way instead of this, the, the obvious way. As far as how to get good at it, I've definitely found myself doing doing more of that kind of thing when I am fixing especially subtle bugs or things that took a while to figure out because I think well if it if if the bug was there and it took us a while to find it we could probably use a bit more explanation around this so that's a good time to to add that kind of documentation do you find that that's often best in the code or do you have some good conventions between where you put things in code versus say in your your team's maybe maybe your team might be making an assumption that you have another area where you document but we do have another area where we document things but i think when people are trying to trying to fix bugs or enhance a system in a particular way they're not going to go looking at other documentation they're going to crack open the code so generally i put that kind of stuff in comments uh, close to where it'll be needed the stuff that we have in our wiki is more operational kinds of things, how to set up the system, how to run it, how to monitor and diagnose it and things like that. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Do you have a strong opinion on whether or not you should leave to do comments in code? <laughs> uh, I, I think they're a terrible idea and I actually do them all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I do them as notes to myself. I usually do a good job of getting them all taken care of before I check something in, but sometimes I, I leave them around. Interesting. Yeah, that's always interesting. I've, I find that I've seen some teams and talked to some people that have said that they put things like in their automated in their uh, in their tooling to prevent those things from getting merged and such. And I'm like, but sometimes it might be just like, a, what about the scenario? Like, well, like in, we're going to have to make a change here in like a year from now. So how do you account for that type of thing? Not that there's a lot of time-based things always in code, but occasionally there are weird little caveats like that. And so if you're if you're in this area again. This is why someone's assigning this to you. But uh, for the past four years, I've been working for a little startup, and we uh, uh, almost a year ago were purchased by Remax. But up until about a year and a half ago, we didn't have more than a couple hundred customers at any given time. And when you're in that kind of a situation and you're trying to move fast, you'll do things that don't scale very well just to to get it out the door right now and satisfy the customers you have, and there is a time-based element to it because, okay, when we hit, you know, a thousand customers for the first time, we should revisit this. And uh, there were definitely some some comments like that in our code. And uh, the problem is when you put them there, there's, there's no good way to uh, make sure you pay attention when the time comes. Do you often use the metaphor technical debt in your day-to-day -day work? I do. I have friends and people I respect who don't like that metaphor very much. I like it. Uh, I think it really is valuable, especially for helping explain the notion of code complexity and its costs to non-programmers. I especially learned this when working for a bank. People there understand debt and interest and uh, how it can come to dominate you or, or control you if you don't manage it, but it's also useful. An important thing about the, the technical debt metaphor is that debt is not all bad. 
Uh, it's something you can choose to take on to take advantage of an opportunity that you otherwise would have to wait on. But if you're not careful and if you don't manage it, it will take over and you end up spending your whole paycheck on interest. And uh, when I was at that bank a number of years ago, where I really learned to love the metaphor of technical debt, we had a whole development team that was basically spending all their time paying interest. They were fixing bugs and uh, keeping things under control and didn't have much time for actually doing new things. You know, as you reflect on your experience with managing teams and being part of teams, what do you think developers often get wrong when they bring up the the notion of technical debt with, say, stakeholders or and, and, and are ineffective at helping convey why they need to maybe approach dealing with some technical debt or maybe even mischaracterizing or mislabeling it? You know, obviously, it's kind of a broad brush. Uh, we call things technical debt even when we didn't choose to uh, make those mistakes. And um, people get bent around the, the axle around whether it's an accurate term and we should just call it bad code or sloppiness or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, for whatever reason that we got in that situation, there's excess complexity or excess code that makes our systems hard to work with. I think a mistake that people make is, is just wanting stakeholders to simply trust us, that, that we need to do it without taking the time to explain why. Uh, another aspect, another mistake that people make is not acknowledging that sometimes it is valuable. It helped us get to where we are right now. We might not still be in business and, and have the luxury of taking care of it if we had not barged ahead and done this in a particular way. We have tried on our system, in our team, to have a healthy back and forth about this. There will be times when the roadmap is really clear and there's a lot of work to do, and let's put cleanup tasks on the back burner while we work on this. But we do that with the understanding up front that there'll be a time when we want to come back around and, and take care of this. I think that kind of honest communication between the developers and stakeholders is really important. And some teams don't have that kind of luxury. Yeah, I know that that can be a challenge where they might hear the, you know, people listening might be even experiencing that while they're, there, there's always kind of like this promise of like a, someday maybe we'll get back to we'll get a chance to take care of that and then you find yourself a year or two three later being like well we never did get to do that and then that becomes a problem and then they feel like well is it the is it the product team business whoever is in control of the the budgets and priorities is it they've decided that we can't prioritize that but um, sometimes I also find that the developers stop asking again or bringing it back up. And I think that happens probably a lot more in it. So I'm always like, well, how often are you bringing this up? Like if you plan it out like ahead of time and come up with like a strategy how to make this useful, is there a way? I, I don't think the businesses want you to cut corners all the time. Nobody's asking you to not write good, healthy test coverage or to take shortcuts all the time. And if you are in that environment, maybe that's a good thing to be aware of and assess your situation. But I don't think that most businesses probably are like that, but I think it becomes this like, well, it's us versus them problem. 
And that's not probably healthy for the environment for anyone whatsoever. So for those listening if that might be finding themselves in that center, do you have some advice for them on how they could maybe kind of course correct that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, to be clear, I don't ask for small things. Uh, and I encourage my team not to ask if it's okay to to do small cleanups. That's part of the job. You, you try to leave every bit of code better than it was when you found it. Clean things up, delete dead code rename things if necessary, taking due care. But if if doing so is not going to add more than, let's say, 25% to the amount of time it takes you to, to get some job done, that's just part of the job. You, you go do that. It's for the larger things that you really need buy-in. And sometimes those things happen. I do talk about it a lot. And I talk about it with regard to what it's costing us. I'm sorry, this took a little longer than expected. It ran afoul of that part of the system we've been wanting to remove for a while, but haven't gotten around to yet, And but we had to make it work with that since it's still there. Whenever I notice one of those things costing us time or making testing or diagnosis more difficult or making the system less stable, I talk about it. Matter-of-factly, not pointing fingers at anybody, just, oh, yeah, this is something that uh, we've been wanting to clean up and it's we're starting to experience why we want to clean that up and uh, making it clear that it costs not just the developers, but the whole team. So in a not a the advice wouldn't be, I told you this was going to happen, but more of a, you're you've, <laughs> right. you've, you're laying the foundation for conversations that you want to have at some point or maybe you're, you're trying to bring up. But like, you know, I think having like keeping like at least you're setting the scene a little bit that like these are things and these are topics that you're going to have to keep bringing back up. You're not going to let them be ignored, I think is what it was, what it sounds like. And so do you feel like that was something you had to learn to do at some point in your career? Like, Ooh, this is the works versus like just putting in a ticket somewhere and being like, Hey, can we do this? And then you, you mentioned not asking for, you know, not asking for say, permission to do those small things. But when it comes to these bigger things, do you, do you recall some experiences of how you were ineffective at that and how you're like, ooh, maybe I'm going to try a different strategy or a good mentor? I I think it was just, um, you know, over my career, I've learned the value of explicit, honest communication. And also part of it is just empathy and understanding. If you're not living in the code every day, you don't notice those things and you don't you don't see how they impact the work. And so they'll never be a priority to you. Why would it? The only, the only way non-programming stakeholders are going to know that it's a problem is if we tell them. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. So I want to switch topics a little bit over to growing a diverse software team. And 
Is it a safe assumption that in the last several years you've been trying to work on that within your own organization? It is. Um, up until about four years ago, for, from, from 2011 until 2016, I worked uh, at Living Social. And for the last three of, that, three of those years, I was uh, a director there, uh, had a wonderful team of peers, including two women who really taught me a lot about the importance of that and how to pursue it, Maria Gutierrez and uh, Jesse Link. And we worked on that a lot at, at Living Social with some success. And then I moved to FIRST, where I you know, uh, have been working for the past four years before we were purchased by Remax. It was a tiny little startup. To be honest, we weren't doing very well in that regard. You know, little startups often hire people they know already and uh, have worked with in the past. And we had a little team of guys, and but we had a an HR officer who cared passionately about diversity and was eager to work with me to address that. And um, I guess two years ago now, we kind of first had our first crack, you know, uh, in that, um, white guys team and, and started making it a little more diverse. And, um, this year we've hired two wonderful women onto the team that, um, uh, are both career switchers and have just been tremendous assets from the day they started. I was just in a hiring retrospective a little while ago where we talked about what more we can do. Hmm. What, what sort of uh, strategies have you taken with your team to not only so it's it's I know there's the aspect of the you know my team has we've put a lot of energy in this over the last several years as well and we have we're almost feel like 50 50 we're pretty close with between men and women but there's a lot of other facets of diversity as well right and we're you know it's a learning thing and so so and there's a lot of aspects that we have and you know we're still predominantly white. So that's something we're aware of, and we're you know we're we're we're, we're talking about it and, and to navigate those uncomfortable conversations. But when it comes to you know when you have your team, it's like there's one thing to bring people in, but then also how do you help the rest of the team that's there set them up for success so that they can make sure that they're providing a very inclusive environment uh, for whoever's coming in and make sure that those people can be successful and thrive there. Have you had some good conversations or strategies around that as of yet? Uh, yes. Again, our, our HR officer at our company was really instrumental in teaching the whole company about open communication, reflective listening, implicit bias, not to say that we're, we're perfect in those regards, of course, but we have a foundation of trust and honesty. We've always avoided calling ourselves a family. Because that language, you know, is used to build a bond, but then when it becomes inconvenient, uh, oh, well, you're not a family anymore, we're laying you off. Using the family language in a workplace is a very one-sided proposition. So we try to avoid that and acknowledge our responsibilities to each other, but also talk about, um, you know, where that ends. We, we expect certain things of employees, but not everything. And they shouldn't expect everything from us, but they should definitely expect certain things. And having those honest conversations helps a lot. Yeah, thanks for opening up a little bit about that. I think I know that there's people listening that are 
probably in varying degrees navigating that, either whether they're helping oversee a team or just being part of a team that's kind of looking around and being like, well, everybody looks like me. So is that going to change or was there something I can do to help influence that? And so, you know, this isn't the primary topic of this the theme of this particular podcast, but it's something I know that you've, you've been thinking and working on and I wanted to at least touch on it a little bit with you. I'm, I'm also, one of the, one of the things you brought up as well that you said, um, the people that, um, two women you recently hired that were career switchers. And I reflect on some of the people, some of my, in my opinion, some of the best hires I've made have been in the last four or five years have been junior developers that went through, they decided to go through a career change. And I'm just like, Oh wow! Like you just bring so much to the table when you show up. Not only yeah, you're you're learning to be a programmer, but you have all these other like skills, work skills, work ethic, um, perspectives that you know the people that are. And I'm trying not to be biased against people that are like right out of computer uh, computer science courses and stuff like that. But I've had way more success um, on adapting, at least with the client facing work that we do. Um, my company um, with our type of business, but I'm always curious how that might be helpful also and maybe even in a product type environment. I agree wholeheartedly with that. I, I think every software team needs somebody with a deep grasp of, of fundamentals uh, and some, some sort of more formal programming background, but you certainly don't need everybody to have that. And We've always had a policy on this team of trying to hire more for career trajectory than actual experience. Uh, some people do just learn faster than others. And you can generally pick up on that in uh, looking at the progress of their career and interviewing them and learning what kinds of questions they ask, what kinds of cha- how eager they are to take on new challenges. We have a team of seven developers, seven engineers, and four of them are career switchers. And... They are all fantastic in in different ways. Uh, You're right. They bring different perspectives. Uh, They bring appreciation, I think, and enjoyment of the job that somebody who has been a programmer forever might be a little more jaded, I guess. Uh, You know, it's hard to describe, but I certainly advocate giving people a chance who want to learn this. One of our career switchers was entirely self-taught, learned programming as a hobby to help him get things done while he had another job. And we were his first programming job. He, He predates me at this company. I didn't hire him. And the me of four and a half years ago might not have been willing to take a chance like that, but the me of today would because he made a believer out of me. Yeah, I'm really glad that my our, our technical co-founder hired him back then. We'll be back with our interview with Glenn in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen maintainable. I know your time is valuable and you've got a lot of things going on, but you're here listening and, well, I appreciate it. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever else people seem to be writing reviews on podcasts. A tweet is always nice as well. Also, do you know someone that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and make a recommendation. And now, back to our interview with Glenn Vanderberg. You know, when it comes to the, like, say, the intersection between product 
management and say the engineering team, what are some indicators that your teams are collaborating in, in a healthy fashion? Oh, that's a good question. And, and we have it really good. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can boil it down to indicators. I, I will just talk about what we actually do and what it looks like on our team. We have meetings that we call requirements elicitation meetings, which is kind of a dry term, but it lets us uh, look at things that are coming uh, that the product team is thinking about, gives the engineers a chance to get a sneak peek, weigh in on those. That input from the engineers is sought by the product managers. They want to hear our opinions. They want to hear whether we think it's a good idea. They want to hear whether it's more complicated than they thought it might be, or maybe easier than they thought it might be, or if there's an easier way to meet the same goal. We also have occasional design reviews with the design team. Uh, and again, they, they are eager to accept feedback from the developers of, I don't like the wording on that screen or that button, um, need more of a clear call to action here, uh, things like that. You know, that, that kind of makes it sound like it's more one-sided and it's the product team's job to make that collaboration effective. I don't actually think that because the engineers have to be willing and they have to care and they have to put in that work and, and give the feedback. But to some degree, it does have to be led by the product team because for reasons of experience and, and uh, technical knowledge, they're going to have less to, to offer the engineers about how things get done. It's really at the level of the roadmap where collaboration can happen. In, in that type of, in there you mentioned your, is that the uh, requirement solicitation meetings? So you have these, are these regular, consistently scheduled at the same time, same place type of thing? Every Thursday, right after stand-up. How many people on your team participate in that, or is that everybody? We all do. We do have a front-end, back-end split on our engineering team. You know, there there are people who can float back and forth and do real full-stack development, but we we have a couple of people who are just really comfortable on the front-end and, and don't have much back-end knowledge, and a couple of people like me that you wouldn't want touching your front-end code. So... There are definitely places where everything we're talking about today is really front-end heavy, and I tune out mostly, and the people who are heavy into back-end development tune out. Occasionally, we are talking about things that are very much back-end work, and uh, I've never asked them, but I assume the front-end folk tune out for that. Usually, everybody's on the meeting. We, we keep our ears open for things that impact the things that we know and work with and chime in on those. Okay. So I was, I'm always curious because I know that there's, and so talk to some people where their team will have maybe a few designated people that participate in those. And then you'll hear the other people on the team like, well, I've known earlier that maybe I could have said something or, you know, there's always this desire if you could have been part of the requirements gathering process way earlier then we could have prevented this because, you know, the all clever developer knows if they had been part of, they would have, they would have helped prevent that. So, um, but I also know, you know, as a business owner, it's expensive to have everybody be in every meeting sometimes it, or sometimes people are in meetings and yeah, sometimes they like there's things that aren't don't seemingly relate to them. They didn't speak up at the time. 
and then that can get missed too. But for those that are, so for those listening, participating in meetings like that, do you have some advice on how to be a good listener? Because I know you mentioned uh, reflective listening is like something you've learned. I don't know if that's some, if there's anything related to just being a good listener and in those types of meetings where it doesn't always apply to you, but it's. I don't really have much to say about that. I will say, you know, when it's managed, when it comes to managing the cost of having everybody in a meeting and uh, against wanting everybody's input or, or, or wanting everybody to feel that they have the opportunity for input, clear agendas really help. And the way we actually manage this meeting is, um, you know, like like all teams, we have a, a task board or a storyboard or something like that, and we use a tool called Clubhouse. There's a lane called Ready for Review, and we ask people, you know, the, the product team does a good job of the day before that meeting. They'll drag things over there and make it clear, this is what we're going to cover in elicitation the next day. And if you have any, and, and, and if the developers have any large cleanup or technical debt stories that they want to tackle soon, please drag them over there as well. And that way you can look at that lane on the board and know what's going to be discussed and whether you need to be there or uh, how much attention you need to be paying and things like that. So it sounds like in your your team's culture, there's a lot of um, there's there's clear agendas, there's prep work going in, and then you have real time communication to help sort out some things. Has there been you know because it's something you know I feel like the word of the year is becoming asynchronous communication is like and is that something that you feel like your team is talking about much or has much interest in digging into more like about how you could change things as a as an organization. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about that. Our engineering team has been distributed uh, from the st- geographically distributed from the start. The, the first is headquartered in Durham, North Carolina, and quite a lot of the non-engineers live there. But um, the engineers are spread out across all four U.S. you know mainland time zones. Then we joined uh, last December. Joined Remax, which is almost entirely located you know in the office in Denver we could tell right from the start that it was going to be kind of a struggle adapting. We could tell that they didn't quite know how to deal with these people they could only talk to via Zoom or whatever. And, and you know, not to belittle them or, or make fun or anything, because, yeah, it's a, a, an odd thing when you're used to one thing uh, and something totally different comes into your company. Uh, in that respect, you know, I... I hate to think of the pandemic as uh, bringing good, but at least in that respect, it's been uh, helpful to us because it, it was a crash course for the rest of Remax in how to deal with asynchronous communication and rely on those things and when to use chat and when to use email and when it's worthwhile to uh, hop on a Zoom call and and coordinate more closely for things. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about that. So you mentioned that you've you know you've been you've been working remotely for what I think fifteen years or so, and you know knowing that your team's been distributed and dealing with that hybrid model of where the you know the parent company isn't and then COVID hits and everybody scrambles, is it a safe assumption that work life isn't the same for you during COVID as it was pre-COVID? I keep telling people I feel immensely fortunate and privileged 
uh, in this situation because my daily routine, and in fact, my family's daily routine, hasn't changed very much at all. And, and that's one of the reasons I have tried to take it very seriously and stay in and wear a mask and not take risks. Not necessarily that I'm scared and, and don't want to get sick, although, you know, I don't want to get sick. But not everybody has that luxury of being able to shelter at home and eat in. They need, and we as a society need them to be out working. And the more those of us who don't have to do that, stay in and wear masks and uh, keep the infection rate low, the better it is for those who do have to be out and about and, and in the workplace. So I just feel like uh, it's one of the ways I express my gratitude for us, you know, having it so good is to take it very seriously. I think that's uh, some some good points there. I, I definitely agree with you on all that as well. I'm, you know, I think the thing that's been interesting is knowing that not everybody that say had and well, I've heard some stories where people that had been working remote and distributed for quite a while, where they're like, well, it's not the the day to day isn't the same anymore because some of the, my outlets of like I would go to the gym or I would go do this thing like that's not available anymore. So I'm in a slightly different world as well, and so it's not like the same for me. But then the people that are like, okay, I'm I don't have the space to really work at home because I I didn't plan for a pandemic. I personally don't have a I'm working literally on my uh, dining room table with my fiance sitting on the other side of the table. I'm technically I'm in my office right now so I can record this episode, but then I'm going to head back and do that. But, uh, that's, it's been, it's been an interesting time. And so I'm trying to account for like how different people on different teams are navigating and being empathetic towards people just having different life realities, whether or not they have kids at home, or even if they're, they don't have kids at home, they have different situations that are very complicated. So I know that this is kind of trailing a little off of the, the primary theme of the episode again, but it's given, that I knew that you've had that background there. I was, I was just curious to see if how, how things have been going in your world there, in your team. One thing I've learned it, to, to address that specific point, like you said, I've worked from home for a long time, and uh, um, I really value video. You know, when you're, when you're in person, there's so much implicit communication that happens through body language and posture and uh, facial expressions and things like that. I think video is a super valuable tool, but I've really had to think about a lot since the pandemic happened. There are a lot of people we're working with who are not working from home by choice. And I wouldn't be annoyed by seeing their pets in the background or kids, but they might not feel right about it or might worry that uh, we're annoyed by that or judging them for their decorating skills or, uh, and, and, you know, the standards of being presentable for work are uh, sadly different for men and women. And, you know, that doesn't matter to me, but it, it matters for them. And, and my, my, their self, self-perception and self-image might be important and they didn't have time to uh, get dressed uh, as much well as they would like or put makeup on that morning. And so they don't want to go on video. And so I'm much less emphatic about it than I used to be that uh, you need to have video turned on because everybody's in a different situation and we just want to be tolerant about that. I try to model it, but uh, if you don't want to turn video on, that's your business. 
No, I think that's a that's a good point, and I think it's something that I've had to kind of come around on as well. And it's like, okay, I, it was like a quick reality check when the first couple of weeks of when the pandemic hit, I was just like, oh, that's where you live. Oh, that's your bedroom. Or, you know, it's just like, oh, that's what your your partner looks like. And then when they're doing, when they're making coffee behind you or, you know, whatever, like, oh, that's your pet. And it's, it felt, it felt very, uh, in a weird way, interesting because you get to get to like learn these different things about people. But I'm like, this isn't, Nobody like I mean I'm like I don't want to go in my bedroom and turn the you know turn the camera on so it's just it's just like a not it's not super comfortable so anyway thanks for talking about that so I want to you know dig into a couple of quick topics with you when it comes back to like some of the, your day to day team processes so as technical debt or maintenance type tasks come up what is your team's strategy for capturing that at, at that point in time and deciding how to prioritize it or not is that something like what what does that look like at the moment? It's, it's very informal. I've sometimes, sometimes used the, the language of, you know, we, we try to maintain an inventory of pain. We're aware of what parts of the code bother us and that we don't want to touch if we can help it or change there is painful. And, uh, and there's some that's been there since before I started working here, but it's pretty stable and we don't need to change it much, and so uh, we've left it alone. But the things that we do touch, the, the team will start talking about, and, and, you know, developers like to gripe about stuff like that, and so we'll complain about it to each other. And getting back to the listening thing again, I try to pay attention to that, and as the engineering lead saying, well, why don't we clean that up? What can we do to make it better? encourage people to put a card on the board about it. And you were asking earlier about uh, what are some good tips for getting buy-in from the stakeholders. One of them is to do the work to produce a good plan. Uh, don't just put on a, put a card on the board that says, uh, you know, we need to clean up this part. What would that look like? What would the tasks be? Spend a little time thinking about how you could do it in pieces with that could be scheduled in you know, small spare time slots during the week instead of having to set aside uh, three days to do it all at once. For a product person who is being asked to prioritize this work that they don't have a good understanding of, just seeing a card with a well-thought-out plan of these are the steps we need to do, that gives them a lot of confidence that it's something the team cares about and that it's not going to be, you know, flailing around, not doing anything productive for a few days. I think that's some some good advice there in terms of like it shows that you know helps build confidence by also showing a sense of ownership. I think of like this is what we're going to do. You're not necessarily asking permission. You're asking for. It's more of like can we skip? When can we schedule this? It's more of you know it's 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 like changing around. Like this needs to be done. Maybe it doesn't need to be done today, but we need to, we need to fit it in. We need to get this scheduled. When can we schedule this? Might be maybe an effective way to like help pitch getting that card or feature technical debt cleanup, refactoring, upgrade, all those other fun types of projects that kind of fall under that umbrella. I think that are not always super enticing necessarily to product owner. We like, okay, what's this blurry, fuzzy refactoring X thing mean? So could someone please explain that to me? Like I'm you know, 14 or something. So. With that, I have a couple of quick class questions. Um, 
What non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? What non-software development related book do I find myself recommending? As he turns around and looks at his library. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I, I, I'm not going to answer your question because I don't have a good answer to that particular question, but I will just pick up a book that's sitting on my desk because I've recommended it to somebody in the past week. Uh, it's a book by Joseph M. Williams called Style Toward Clarity and Grace. And this is the first edition that I bought a long time ago, and I think it's on like the 16th or 17th edition now. Um, it's been actively revised. It's a book on good writing. And unlike most books on how to write well, this one has actionable, useful advice about what to do, not just about things not to do. And it's an excellent uh, book, and it, it practices what it preaches. It's it's very good. Excellent. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is GLV. And I also have a blog. I don't blog very much these days like most people. But uh, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to get around to writing more now, more long-form things. Um, now that I'm not working for a tiny cash-strapped startup with a short runway, <laughs> uh, have a little more time to think about that kind of thing. I'll definitely include a link to, to your Twitter account and to your blog on in the show notes. And with that, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Glenn. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It was a fun conversation. Appreciate it. Oh, 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 oh.